Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Foreign Name Enunciator Extraordinaire, Knockreiner. On today's episode, I have the best Corey... words and the best last name enunciations ever. Completely butchers a pair of names. Uh, but before that... No, it was, it, was, <laughs> it was the bigly bestest enunciation ever, Mark. There's no enunciator in the world ever as bigly bestest as me. Well, let it's, the audience it's, it's every, people, Everyone's... Uh, so-and-so told me. It's everyone... They were crying. They cried at my enunciation of those names. I can see why. Uh, before Corey <laughs> butchers those names, though, uh, we cover the latest zero-day exploit against the uh, Cisco iOS XE operating system. A quick update on the EPA's efforts to improve cybersecurity in municipal water districts. Uh, a, I guess when Corey does butcher the name is when we discuss a new bulletproof host for attacks uh, against people browsing the internet. And then as Corey dies, uh, we go into an update from CISA on the secure by design and secure by default guidance. Uh, with that- Let EPA protect water. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Let's swim our way in. I'm dorky today. <laughs> I see. Sassy. Corey's got his sassy pants on today. So let's start today with our first story. Um, this actually began on October 16th, so about halfway through this last week, by the time you're listening to this, when Cisco released a security advisory describing a critical zero-day privilege escalation vulnerability in the web UI of their iOS XE software for some of their routers and switches. Um, alongside this advisory, uh, Cisco Talos, their research arm, uh, went through and described the vulnerability and some of the impacts and the active exploit that they were seeing uh, targeting it in the wild. Uh, in Cisco Talos's post, they described it saying, uh, quote, the vulnerability allows a remote, unauthenticated attacker to create an account on a affected system with privilege level 15 access, and the attacker can use that account to gain control of the affected system. Uh, so basically, it's a authentication bypass vulnerability where if the management web UI interface in iOS XE is exposed to the attacker, they can create themselves an account with administrative privileges and then use that to do other things. Now, so Cisco noted in their advisory that the vulnerability was under active exploit in the wild, and they even provided a curl like web requests uh, to check whether any given system has been compromised by a implant that they had identified targeting Cisco devices. Now they said they first discovered the attack uh, on September, or at least the activity on September 28th, when a customer opened a support case after identifying some unusual behavior on the router. Um, and then after review, they found additional related activity as early as September 18th, uh, which included a unauthorized user creating a account under the name of Cisco underscore TAC underscore underscore admin uh, from a suspicious IP. Uh, they went on to discover additional clustered activity on October 12th, which included additional actions, including deploying this implant, as they're calling it, uh, which consisted of a configuration file called cisco underscore service.conf. Uh, this config, I guess, defines a, a new web server on the router or switch 
um, that allows an attacker to then connect back into it and interact with the endpoint. Uh, so during their discovery, Cisco found uh, once the attackers created their account using this new vulnerability, they then exploited an old CVE, uh, CVE 2021-1435, as the delivery method for the actual implant once they were authenticated. Now, this was like an old authenticated arbitrary code execution vulnerability from 2021. Uh, but they also noted that they discovered additional fully patched devices that were like safe from that vulnerability still had the implant installed on them through some unknown mechanism. Uh, so in Cisco's advisory, they mentioned that it was being exploited in the wild. They gave uh, some tools on how to detect if your any given system was affected by it. And then researchers at Census uh, went on to go discover that, uh, first off, there were 67,445 hosts uh, with the web interface exposed to the internet. And of those, 34,140 of them, which is slightly more than half, showed that backdoor implant had been installed. This is pretty nuts. Holy crap. Like, first off, that's a lot of devices just with management access exposed to the internet. That should not happen. Uh, yeah, census's grandma meme is accurate. Exactly. By the way, for the listeners out there, they have something that says, that's a lot of pwned Cisco. <laughs> exactly. As the elderly lady is lifting her glasses to focus in on the computer screen. Is that how you describe that meme? Anyways. Yeah, I think that's right. And yeah, we all know that Cisco admins are typically elderly ladies, or at least Cisco firewall admins get watch guard. <laughs> They're young and cool. And uh, support if we the Kraken. This, I feel like we'd be allowed to throw that crap. But uh, unfortunately, we don't compete in that space. But anyways, <laughs> uh, so of those that were exposed, the 67,000, 34,000 of them showing evidence of this implant just shows how wide ranging this particular attack was. Um, so, I mean, first off, I want to say good on Cisco for coming out with a pretty thorough post from their Talos team describing what's going on um, and how you can identify if you're impacted. Um, but at the same time, that's a pretty insane breadth of attack. And my main takeaway from that is there are still a lot of administrators out there that take the easy route of just exposing management to the internet, either intentionally or ignorantly, uh, instead of using more secure methods of managing their devices only from a internal and preferably entirely segmented out of band management VLAN. That's fairly speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you said it. I mean, the key here is you're only exposed to this if you put a web-based management interface on the internet for your switches or routers. And we know that's pretty stupid for reasons that we've shared before, even with our own stuff. Uh, so there's lots of more secure ways to do that. Go do it. Exactly. Uh, I so will if say you do census have a... has oh, go, a lot of good numbers on, you yeah. know, compromise hosts for country. If you don't know census, they're kind of like a showdown and the other folks that scan the internet, you know, looking for header responses from servers to give you ideas of things and sometimes looking beyond headers, certificates, and sometimes a little deeper to find uh, indications of vulnerabilities, which is why they have all this data. So and good they're also by them. significantly more expensive than uh, my $1 lifetime premium license to Shodan that I got at Black Friday seven years ago. Yeah, uh, that was, I, I, I love that, what they that do. license. 
Uh, <laughs> but Shodan is like DEFCON and Census is like Black Hat. Black Hat. In terms of cost. Actually, <laughs> I think uh, Shodan is like DEFCON and Census is like the, the G5 summit. Or where is it that all the rich people go to <laughs> in Sweden for some private, we own the world, so let's talk about it summit. Is that G5? That's Whatever I think that the country is. leaders. I know what you're talking about. I can't place it because for some reason my invite keeps getting lost in the mail. <laughs> um, but anyways, if you are a Cisco administrator, first off, I would double check. If you are running iOS XE, double check to make sure you don't have that web interface enabled and exposed to the internet. Uh, even if you have it just enabled and you're not sure how it's exposed, definitely take a look at the curl command that Cisco Talos provides to confirm whether or not that implant may be on your device. Um, so moving on, we've got a update to a story from back in March, where this last March we briefly discussed as a part of the US White House National Cybersecurity Strategy, um, some of the regulatory like requirements coming down in the world of critical infrastructure and cybersecurity. And we briefly discussed the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's new requirements for states to evaluate the cybersecurity of public water systems. Um, we pointed to they pointed to increasing cybersecurity attacks against these and threats, including that Oldsmar, Florida, attempted poisoning uh, attack with a wasn't it like Team Viewer or something like that that someone was able to brute force their way in and. Yeah. Move the mouse around and it was only caught because a human being was sitting there at the computer watching it happen. Um, so they enacted these rules in March saying that they're going to start basically requiring states to first evaluate their cybersecurity deficiencies. And then if any are found, which most likely there are, they'll be required to address them at the state level. Uh, they offered from the EPA... Um, training and additional funding to help states meet these requirements at that time too. But a few states, uh, namely Arkansas, Iowa, and Missouri, uh, decided that the funding and training was not enough and the burden was too much. And so they, their attorneys general sued the EPA to stop this rule. Uh, the American Water Works Association and the National Rural Water Association also later joined the lawsuit all basically arguing that the EPA uh, does not have the authority to issue these new regulations without congressional approval. Uh, in July, a appeals court temporarily blocked the EPA from enforcing its security audit. And then just this last Wednesday, the EPA finally pulled the plug and announced it was withdrawing its mandatory requirements. And instead, it hopes that states will, quote, voluntarily engage in reviewing public water system cybersecurity programs. So, <sighs> Sorry, uh, you weren't, were you asking for my advice yet? <laughs> well, I don't <laughs> think either of you are like, you and I aren't necessarily like, oh my God, we need more regulation. Um, but in the cases of cybersecurity, like we've kind of proven over the last few decades that voluntarily like rules in critical infrastructure sectors, they're great, but they're not necessarily followed. In fact, more often I, than Yes, not. exactly. I mean, I don't want to get political between one side versus the other, but I don't think even one side wants regulation. Regulation, when you have to go to, it's a pain in the ass, it's costly, it slows down things, but you do it when you're neglectful. And basically, these brat states, I want to use a stronger word, 
are saying, we don't want to do the right thing. And because we think we should be a state system and screw the Fed, we're not going to do it. But they're, they're literally being neglectful. They're not passing good security audits and they're upset that they have to do the bare minimum. I just think it's freaking horrible. And it, it, we know, I think we're going to be talking about later, that uh, cybersecurity should be uh, it should not be political. It should be nonpartisan. And uh, that said, the current White House, which I guess some would say is very partisan, is trying to push new regulation and new ideas to increase our cybersecurity. But to me, this state pushback means all the things we're looking to do that the, maybe our government currently is trying to do with cybersecurity strategy are going to be pushed back on. Honestly, if those states get ransomware and their entire water system screwed, uh, we know who to blame. You know it's going to come straight to uh, the, the DA there and all the uh, owners of the party that actually control that state because... And I don't hope a bad attack on anyone because there's going to be so many innocent people in the state messed up if suddenly a meat company can't make meat for half of America or a water <laughs> company gets poisoned. Uh, water hasn't been poisoned yet, but that meat company or, or, or maybe if people in Texas can't get gas anymore. But don't worry, your state doesn't want to do security audits, so you'll be fine. Who needs gas anyways? Everyone in Texas loves clean energy, so they'll be okay. <laughs> I don't like solar and wind farms, right? <laughs> Sorry, that's you, you Mark. You joke. Speaking <laughs> of someone living in Texas, it is actually, I. this is not me defending Texas, but I'm also going to defend Texas. I'm pretty sure they're the largest ratio of renewable energy anywhere. They just really don't like it for some reason. It's, it's uh, kind of silly. Until it makes them a ton of money, they're going to be mad at it just because another party likes it. Uh, but yep. I guarantee Anyways. you, especially with Whatever. their son, one day they'll be like billionaires from it and they'll be like, why are you all on oil? Yeah, That's it. <laughs> you know what? I may not have an oil field under my house, but I do have a lot of sun. I'm going to put on solar panels and that's how I'll become rich. Uh, but anyways, yep. not a political or a en energy uh, podcast. No, um, no, no. My main concern with this was this was kind of one of the first, like not offensive, but like regulatory enforcement actions around these National White House cybersecurity strategy. And it seems to have come up as a bit of a dud. And is this like ill omens for the rest of whatever enforcements? Uh, I'm going to answer my own question in that I, it's gonna, we're going to have to rely on congressional action coming down through this. So it's basically the EPA was losing because the courts were seeming, seemingly siding with the states that they needed to have congressional approval for these new regulations, and they didn't. So it sounds like in order for the national uh, cybersecurity strategy from the White House to actually have any effect, it has to go through Congress and it can't go through regulatory agencies. Um, so I guess we'll see how that goes as the others start coming through. And until then, like the EPA is still offering up resources for local water municipalities and water districts to better their cybersecurity, but now that's just voluntary, like that one dude sitting there monitoring water, like how is he, how much does he care about actually auditing cybersecurity infrastructure? As we'll see. We'll find out. Um, so we'll find out one day when the next water supply place it's not gets like uh, countries aren't going to war right now. And, and, uh, they're definitely not using cyber as part of their warfare. So it'd be fine. Of course not. 
Speaking of cyber, moving on to the next topic, um, there was a blog post last week I stumbled upon by an individual going by the handle of Guardio. Maybe it's a company, maybe it's a person, I'm not sure. They posted on Medium, though, last week, describing the latest evolutions in the clear well, Guardios, just so you know, if you Guardio Labs is a company, but it's uh, Nati Tal and Oleg Zaytsev. I'm sorry, you guys, you are awesome researchers, but I'm American. I can't help it. Anyways, they posted the latest evolutions of Clearfake, which is a campaign that uh, compri- that compromises WordPress websites uh, to host a fake browser update prompt that ultimately downloads a info stealer malware like Redline or Amati or Luma. And historically, these campaigns, they're a multi-stage JavaScript payload where this first stage lives on the compromised WordPress website. It then goes and downloads a second stage from a Cloudflare worker. And that second stage is what ultimately displays the fake browser update prompt saying you need to update your Firefox or Chrome in order to view this web page. By the way, that clear fake analysis was kind of the something that was discovered by a guy named Randy McGeehan. If you're following our YouTube, you'll you'll see. And that that Cloudflare one was what he originally discovered. But as Mark will will tell you, this is going to be a new twist on the same thing. Uh, so Cloudflare has been, been getting better at identifying and blocking these accounts quickly, uh, which effectively halts the entire campaign because the first stage has nothing to call back to, uh, and they have to go re-compromise or at least re-access that website to update the first stage to download the additional second ones. Uh, but this story begins where the researchers identified one of these first stages on a compromised Web- WordPress website calling out to servers that were owned by the Binance Cryptocurrency Exchange. And so when they de-obfuscated that first stage code, they found it was actually loading up a smart contract on Binance's uh, BSC chain and downloading data from there. So if you're not familiar with smart contracts or you haven't heard the probably dozen podcast episodes at this point where we've talked about them, um, it's effectively a way to run an application on a distributed blockchain. And Ethereum was kind of the one that pioneered this. They're the second most valuable by market cap in fake money blockchain currently. Uh, Binance, the cryptocurrency exchange, uh, spun up their own kind of clone of Ethereum called BSC or Binance Smart Chain, uh, which they say is effectively the same technology, but more efficient and thus cheaper to use, cheaper to run. Transaction fees on Ethereum can get relatively expensive, like on the orders of dollars or even tens of dollars sometimes, depending on how robust your smart contract is. BSC, on the other hand, is typically less than a dollar for most of the, uh, the, the fees you pay in order to add something to the chain. Um, so they found that the smart contract in this case was pretty simple. Uh, contained a data storage array. So think just like a variable that can hold arbitrary data. It had a update function where the owner of the smart contract, the cryptocurrency wallet that owns it, could update that data storage array. And then it had a get function that would return the contents of that data storage as just encoded text. Uh, The first smart contract was uploaded on September 9th. They noticed that the first update was literally just a test. It had the string test in there. And then since then, all these subsequent updates we're updating that data storage array to include what was effectively or ultimately JavaScript. Uh, it's a pretty simple JavaScript file that uh, goes and grabs another JavaScript file from another domain, 
uh, decodes it, and then runs it through a eval statement, so executes it on the web browser. And this so far has been updated about 30 times. Every time this now third stage domain has gotten uh, taken down by whatever the hosting provider is, the owner of the smart contract just goes in, updates the contract, costs them a couple cents, and it puts in a new domain. Uh, the They're able to interact with this through uh, Binance's software development kit. There's a special function in there called eth underscore call, which is designed to be a read-only free operation uh, to simulate executing that contract and reading data without any actual real-world impact. Normally, anytime you interact with a smart contract on Ethereum or Binance, you have to pay a transaction fee because you are literally executing this code on the distributed computing power of everyone that mines that cryptocurrency. Uh, with this one, though, it's a part of the SDK that Binance offers, so it's free for the attacker, in this case, to go and grab the data from their smart contract and then run it in the JavaScript running on these compromised websites. And basically, that first stage, it calls the function, gets the code back, decodes it, runs it, and it can now go grab that additional payload that then shows that fake browser update thing. And this is really interesting because it's effectively a bulletproof hosting provider now for the threat actors. So because it lives on the blockchain, it is immutable. You can't go back and delete it. It's there on a public ledger permanently. And as a smart contract, they can continue going and updating the contents of it too. And because of the magic of cryptography, it's not like Binance can go over and like take over the contract. They don't have the private key associated with it. So all they've been able to do is on their like public view of the contract, they put a little note in there uh, saying that this is associated with a fish, this contract address, but they can't actually prevent you from using it, running it, executing it, whatever. This is a pretty ingenious way of keeping like a, a secondary stage safe or at least being able to continuously update it without the risk of someone like Cloudflare coming and taking it down. Uh, I had to say, like up until right now, I was a pretty firm believer that Web 3.0 was just like this vaporware crap myth that would have no impact on the world of reality. But this is quite literally what people are calling Web 3.0, blockchain cryptocurrency tech, coming in and affecting us in the web 2.0 world and not That's in a, a great way. That's a horrible idea, like immutable blockchain. Like, yeah, it, it seems like a bad idea. I mean, I, I the immutability is great for a non-public ledger, for a centralized under one entity's control ledger. Uh, but I don't think we, people have thought of the... The, the potential consequences of a public unmutable ledger that anyone can control in this way and even the owner can't really adjust without completely forking or something. Yeah, it seems Turns crazy. Out that, uh, some oversight and technology is sometimes a little bit warranted. Uh, that's the thing with the libertarian versus regulation. If you want to live in the Wild West where it's okay for criminals to shoot each other and there's no level of societal protection, well, I don't know. I, I think we all are willing to give up some societal freedoms for, for group safety. Anyways, I guess we'll see. I'm trying to uh, figure most, out like, how do you even, like, 
Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you finish your soapbox rant. Most societies, we live in a society. Uh, it's, I was just going to uh, be, be a grumpy downer and say most societies, including great ones, seem to collapse after 250 years or so. And I think we're, we're getting there. So let's see what happens in the next 20. I swear to God, though, if we're taken down by cryptocurrency, I'm going to be extremely <laughs> upset. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. But, like, so I'm trying to think like practically, how do you address this? Because the whole point is it's immutable. So someone can't go in and change it if they don't own it. Uh, it would entirely break the security of it if they had some sort of backdoor, like a Binance owned co-signing key that could go and update it. Like that would remove all confidence in the immutability of it. Uh, there, In theory, like someone else could, like even if Binance added a filter to their SDK where they've got like a deny list of certain wallets and addresses and contracts that you can't call that they just continuously update a that's a pain in the ass but b someone else could just create their own javascript based sdk that doesn't have that deny list and that becomes yeah. the first stage of the malware like this seems like an extremely tough nut to crack to like protect against and man maybe it turns out that cryptocurrency really wasn't a great idea i don't know I don't think the idea of blockchain and cryptocurrency are a bad idea. I think it's the libertarian decentralized, give it to the public because the public is more trustworthy than entities. I think the reality, you know, why do people not trust a third party currency? It's because they don't trust the third party. People are scared of governments that go corrupt and stuff. So let's just give it to all the people. Well, it turns out the reason governments go corrupt is people go corrupt. So making something that like what problem are you solving by taking your trust from one entity that actually might have a reason to be trust that got in power somehow or it's backed by gold or it's backed by an economy and suddenly saying, let's just trust the random Joe on the Internet. I, I just don't get the libertarian. So <laughs> cryptocurrency is good. The idea of decentralized under everyone's control. Would you give someone your car keys? Why do you want your money under everyone's control? Yeah. Sorry. Anyways, off of Corey's soapbox, I'm I'm thinking <laughs> at least this is potentially something that like, you know, endpoint protection can detect. Like yeah. JavaScript evaluating code, running through eval is something that is an immediate red this flag. Is perfect. Yes, it's used yeah. legitimately all over the place. Um, but it is a red flag to monitor what's going on. JavaScript going and grabbing something off a blockchain, decoding it and evaluating it. Maybe like by the way, wouldn't wouldn't network that, figure it too because it's a, it's being injected on a website you're getting over the network. So there's a chance to see some of the malicious script there too. I would presume even at a network level. Exactly. If you have something, so I think there are ways level. for like defensive tools to protect against it, even if we can't yeah. necessarily solve the protocol itself. So maybe yep. it isn't all doom and gloom on this case. And maybe there is still a chance for the United States of America, even though we've got cryptocurrency running around. But then Cyclicity <laughs> would lose our brand. We'd have to go back to everything is awesome instead of everything sucks. That's a good point. <laughs> I'm kidding. That'd be nice, though. I could sleep at that night. That would be nice. Although I would probably not be employed if there was no more security issues and no more snarky things to talk about. <laughs> Or no more anyway. threat actors. Don't worry, Moving I don't on. that ever happen. No more threat actors. Uh, the last thing we wanted to highlight, it's actually a pretty big and pretty important one. 
so I think we mentioned it on the podcast in our DEF CON recap, where both Corey and I had the opportunity to participate in what was called a Redline workshop for CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency's uh, upcoming release of a expanded white paper on secure by design and secure by default principles for both manufacturers like us at WatchGuard and listeners like you, customers that buy software products from other vendors. Um, well, the fruits of ours and CIS's labor have come out now. And just this last week, uh, they, alongside the FBI, the NSA, and a whole bunch of international agencies, published this new white paper that expands their guidance on that topic of secure by design and secure by default. Uh, if you don't remember, secure by design is basically talking about products or how products should be built in a way that they reasonably protect against cyber threat actors uh, from getting access to it or data or the infrastructure that it protects by default. And secure by, uh, that's by design, secure by default means the products should be designed in a way that they're resilient against cyber attack out of the box without any additional charge or any additional configuration modifications. And really that the complexity of the security configuration should not be a customer problem. Uh, so in the original small section of the white paper, when they were talking about these new guiding principles, they had three main principles for software manufacturers. They said that first they should take ownership of the customer security outcomes. Basically that burden of security should not fall just on the customer. Uh, second, they should embrace radical transparency and accountability. They meant by that is share information that you learn from customer deployments, be transparent about vulnerabilities, participate in the CVE process, publish metrics wherever you can. And then third, build organizational security structures around leadership to achieve these goals. So basically executives need to be a part of the process and prioritize that security as a critical element of product development. Um, so those were the three original principles, and they basically took those and expanded them into this longer report uh, that they just released this last week. Um, there was a few different like things that they really expanded on that I thought were interesting. Uh, first off, they warned companies like us. I guess, first off, this report, it's mostly geared towards software manufacturers. So like WatchGuard, we manufacture software, both the software that runs on our hardware and what runs in WatchGuard Cloud, what runs on your computer and your mobile phone, but it's not just security vendors. It's literally all the software you use, like Microsoft Office and I don't know, PowerPoint. That That's also Microsoft Office. Wow. Great example. <laughs> VLC, QuickTime. I'm literally, uh, I'm looking at the toolbar down here yeah, on my Mac Photoshop. and realizing everything is just Microsoft Office apps. Adobe. Spotify. Spotify goes in there Reader. too. <laughs> but... Anyways, so that it's all about for those software manufacturers, how do you release something that is secure by design all the way through the software development lifecycle and after, um, and also is easy for the customer to set up securely? Uh, they warn against measuring efforts just based off like the amount of investment you put in. It's like measuring it, okay, I spent this many sprint uh, points on implementing, implementing the security feature, like what do we get out of it? And instead, the aim should be to just take ownership of the customer's security outcomes. So basically saying, if a there's a vulnerability, customer suffers a security incident, that is not on them and their misconfiguration, that's on you and you not preventing them from doing that misconfiguration. Now that said, like 
coming down from my ivory tower. Uh, you can do as much as you possibly can to prevent uh, administrators and people from shooting themselves in the foot. But sometimes they will go out of their way to make sure that they shoot themselves in the foot, just being practical about that. Uh, but anyways, back to the report. Uh, they say manufacturers should consider things like application hardening, what the uh, default settings are, making sure that you're using loosening guides and not hardening guides to enable that. Uh, they also recommend taking a look at academic and security research from the community to track like your metrics and your improvements across the entire ecosystem, not just in your specific product. Uh, when it comes to radical transparency, they recommend publishing uh, aggregated security relevant statistics and trends, things like what percentage of your customers have enabled multi-factor authentication for this particular product, uh, what percentage of them are, have bypassed some of your security features and enabled a less secure option in there. And maybe by making these public, you can raise awareness uh, across the board, uh, maybe not directly, but at least indirectly, and influence people to use more secure standards. Uh, they recommend publishing patching statistics, which, man, I mean, Corey, you and I talk about Firebox patching statistics, maybe not in specifics, but we've talked about it and how, in general, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm not super happy with how quickly folks take up on new security updates for what should be a critical piece of their security defense. Sometimes it feels like organizations take way too long to update their firewall appliances. And maybe if we started patching those publicly, maybe that would encourage people to not be in that lower quartile of folks that take potentially up to a year. I don't know. Uh, they also recommend publishing data on like unused privileges. Um, so what are how are people using your products and what is the security ramifications around that? When it comes to developing software, they really point heavily at NIST's Secure Software Development Framework Standard, and they recommend organizations follow that or something similar to uh, secure their software development process. Uh, for the organization, they point to CIS's Cyber Performance Goals. Uh, in comparison, so like at WatchGuard, we follow the ISO 27001 certification um, for uh, validating the security of our organization, but maybe for like smaller manufacturers that can't go through it's, I mean, to be honest, it's a pretty rigorous process. It takes a lot of resources for us to do it and complete our audits for smaller organizations. Maybe instead of going to that length, you can just use CISA's cyber performance goals and use that to measure how well you're doing. Um, and then, uh, this white paper goes on to say, publish your results, like talk about where you're at and what your roadmap is for improving your overall security is just part of radical transparency. Uh, vulnerability transparency is a very big topic in it. They say everyone should either be a certified numbering authority or at least participate in the CVE system. Um, when you have a vulnerability, make sure it's accurately identified and accurately described so that your customers can find it and understand what their potential impact is and how quickly they need to mitigate it. Uh, another area that was interesting that I, I don't want to make promises to what's likely a lot of WatchGuard customers here, but something that I personally think we should fight for, Corey, you and I, is publishing software bills and materials. So basically, like what is the open source software that goes into uh, the tools that you're using? And it makes sense. Like one of the uh, questions we get pretty often through support cases is like, hey, what version of OpenSSL are you using in this component? 
because customers want to know, are they vulnerable to whatever the latest uh, vulnerability in OpenSSL is? And so just publishing a list of the open source components and their versions alongside product releases kind of makes sense. Like A, from deflecting cases from our end, and B, for our customers to maybe not know like how it's used. That's still a question that they'll need answered, but at least understanding what is in use and can guide them towards you know high level, could it affect them or not? I agree, and it may be an easy win for our P-cert because internally we have these S-bombs for sure. I mean, we use them for our own process to make sure we're not vulnerable. Uh, I'm 100% for that. The only thing I'll have to say is I don't think it will get rid of all customer cases because there'll be times where you have, uh, I don't know, open VPN version XYZ, and you're technically vulnerable to something because it's version XYZ, but in the actual details, you're only vulnerable if you compiled it with this parameter enabled and we exactly. could have a version and may not be vulnerable. So we, we still may have to do little posts to let you know, yes, you can see that in our SBOM, but here's why we're not vulnerable to something or other. But I'd rather be transparent, just knowing what we have at least bigs to ask the right question. It kind of sucks that a customer has to ask, are you using widget one, two, three because of this vulnerability? So at least they will know whether we're using it or not. Even if it turns out we're not vulnerable, they'll be able to ask yep. the right questions doesn't solve all the issues but it could at least like deflect the obvious ones where no we are not using open ssl 0.9 or whatever and thus yeah, yeah. entirely unaffected so i like that and like you said Corey, we brought those internally so this could be an easy win for us and we'll see what we can do in the future um, when it comes to principle three it basically boils down to security should be a subcategory of product quality which i think for like at least for us it absolutely is and i think for most companies that is probably the case but maybe for it is many... easier for a security company when your business yes. literally is cybersecurity. Of course, it's. Uh, I don't know if I'm as as positive as you that uh, in if I'm making uh, the latest generative AI application for a phone, if security really is any level of feature design for my product. So uh, I agree with you. It absolutely is for us because we're a security company. Easy. But uh, I hope that's the case for random software companies. Yeah, maybe I am just thinking under the lens of a cybersecurity company. Um, but anyways, so it ends though, this report, it ends with a section for customers as well too. And it basically boils down to, they recommend you hold your supplying software manufacturers accountable to the security outcomes for their products. Um, so I, that first one, you know, Corey, you and I, we tend to talk on the podcast of, you know, every company has vulnerabilities, every company will have incidents, and what matters is how they respond to them, how do they learn from them. That's still absolutely true. This does seem to be shifting the bar a little bit further towards, yes, every company has them, but some have more than others, and maybe you should hold them accountable if they've got fewer potential issues. I think we've gone to that, that caveat before, which is we say that, but the only thing is cases where you were neglectful, right? And I think that's what you mean by the bar being shifted. This, this idea yep. that even if you're not neglectful, even if you're doing, you could be doing all the things in this secure by design document and still have vulnerabilities in your product. It's not going to solve vulnerabilities. It's going to maybe lessen them 
and make sure you have good processes to help your customers fix them quickly when you do have them because of the transparent communication. So I think we give that benefit of the doubt, assuming you're not negligent of everything in this document. But we still said that there are cases where even if you have a really great response, if you're not really doing security 101, that's not good enough. I think, and but, I think that is it, the... Yeah. That is exactly it, is negligence versus like due diligence. And yeah. is a company doing the best they can, following a standard like NIST SSDF or something similar, you know, getting audited and certified by ISO, or are they literally just turning a blind eye and saying, nope, get it out the door? And I think that is where the line absolutely does get drawn. Yeah. Um, they also, they say that uh, organizations should also establish policies for prioritizing the security of a system during the purchasing process and also empower IT to push back if necessary, if you know they feel like it isn't secure enough to deploy. And this is another one where I love it on the face of it, but it's easier said than done when you've got you know your marketing team breathing down your neck saying, we really need this new marketing platform kind of thing yesterday, and they're not going to take no for an answer. But, you know, all things considered, I like that CISA is getting a lot of this stuff that we all kind of feel like uh, down on paper. It gives yeah. you and me ammunition to go back to our teams, to go with our PCERT organization and start trying to enact change internally too and additional progress. So it's good. Before we end, I'm curious if you read, I, I was skimming it just, I think I sent it to you this morning or yesterday, I forget. Yesterday. But I, I'm impressed by how quickly, I mean, it was just about two months ago, we were giving our feedback and PAL version two, which by the way, if you look at the file is called final, <laughs> is done. <laughs> Do you have a sense for how much of, I mean, we mostly only know our feedback, but if anything was actually changed that much based on those feedback sessions? Uh, I did notice they, so my memory of that redlining event was they were focusing a lot of very in the weed stuff in some places. Uh, one of the areas that stood out to me was pointing to memory safe uh, languages for development, which absolutely makes sense. We should be doing that. But they like were very heavy on pushing that throughout the entirety of the report. And I noticed a lot of less of that in the weed stuff in here and more of the like, um, less of the tactical and more of the just strategic uh how you should address this as an organization yeah, so maybe the way they have changed it is they realize that some of the guidelines like while the high level recommendations have not changed one iota some of the things that were more prescriptive on the details of how you get to those high level principles may be too onerous for some companies so rather than try to make perfect exact details how every different company should do things they kind of focus more on the high level is that essentially that what you're saying I that would make sense yeah that was my so i did i read through the whole thing on my flight over here to the uh, great state of wisconsin uh and hey welcome like to overall, my state exactly oh really oh, that's right lacrosse um, just came back there to see my grandma nice uh i i was happy with how this report turned out like i think it's going to be useful for you and i as uh security passionate people in a technology company that is already like as an organization WatchGuard and watch guardians are passionate about security so it's not too tough of a sell but this still does give us ammo to prioritize things that you and i are more passionate about than others um so i'm happy with it i imagine it'll be useful for 
other organizations not in the security space that do software development for their security teams to either get established or provide this as ammunition for, hey, we need to start following this. Because again, this is all voluntary at this point. None of this is required. But the way that the United States is moving with the national cybersecurity strategy is towards this potentially becoming required in the future. And in fact, they're trying to pass at some point in the next half a decade or so regulations around it that would- uh, Until that three states who don't like it are going to say, no, we, we have a state system. By the way, this was the story I was highlighting when we talked about that. Yeah. This is exactly what I, I would love to see everything you just said, because I believe this is very nonpartisan. And while I don't welcome onerous regulation, I actually appreciate this problem because they didn't put onerous regulation and even what we just described of them going to more generic high level recommendation and not trying to prescribe the details shows that they're not really trying to mess up any industry. They just want you to not be negligent. So, yep. but anyways, this is what I was talking. I mean, I agree with what you said in context, but that EPA story to me is a sign that uh, there are people currently in government that just doesn't want anything to get done. Uh, I don't think they have an answer for any of these problems. They just want to see the world burn. Well, if you look at section, that's man, that's dark. If you look at section <laughs> 3.1 of the cybersecurity strategy, they were specifically calling on our totally functional Congress uh, to pass this, as opposed to that EPA one, which was a regulatory agency trying to make a yeah. and have a lot of weight. So if Congress decides to elect themselves a Speaker of the House and start passing- Yeah, you got uh, there before I did. They, they, they can't even <laughs> decide who the leader is. <laughs> okay. That's and it's because of a few road. people that yeah. don't really, they want to see it burn. They don't have answers to why or what you should do instead. They just know what they don't want. I think I this is the very first episode where Corey and I are going to flip and that Corey is the, the bad news bears guy. <laughs> and I actually think that, you know, there will be a point sometime in the near future where they at least get moving again. And then maybe we can address some let's, of these serious issues like cybersecurity. If, they're, if they watch our 2024 predictions, everyone listens to you and me, obviously. We are trendsetters, Clearly. Mark. Like the whole world, they, they're waiting for us. So let's make it a prediction, then it will happen. The Congress will listen. There we go. Uh, my prediction is we get that regulations around Section 3.3 in the cybersecurity strategy sometime before 2033. Oh, shoot. You defanged it. <laughs> I do plan on making something around uh, that uh, one of our predictions for 2024, but we'll see if we can uh, call it for the year or if it's going to be forward thinking. There's no way this is going to happen in the next year unless we <laughs> suffer a massive national cybersecurity incident. It's, it's not possible, but who knows? I could be wrong. Either way, like good stuff from CISA. This is Instead a very of thorough. The five that happened last year with meat companies, oil pipelines. Uh, they own all of OPM's documents. Our fingerprints are out there. They know who our secret agents are all over the no, world. But those happened previously. NSA can't keep all the zero day they're hiding from the world and Microsoft prod. Yeah, it's not like anything's happened. Those happened in the past. We've forgotten about them now. What matters is what happens in the future. So that we can forget about it a day later. Again, when somebody does a new stupid thing every single day over and over and over again, and we literally are electing the people doing the stupid things. Why do I feel like Corey's about to retire and move to Canada? <laughs> 
may not be far enough away. I'm kidding. I love our America. I'm here to fix it. There we go. And our friends at CISA are doing their best to try and help us along that way too. So yeah, highly recommend checking it out if you like nerding out. We all, yeah, all of our banks need this. It, it, has, yes. it doesn't have to be anyone's particular political bank. Let's protect all banks. And I guess also hats off to their graphic designer. They got a pretty cool logo for this. Yeah, one. it was a pretty, like it. it was a neat document. We didn't show it for that long because there's tons of words, not enough images, but it was, pre- well, I guess we're saying it's pretty too, but a lot of words, but it was gorgeous. Considering I like the title like page. The, the FBI IC3 and their reports that look like they come from the early 90s, this is pretty slick. Yeah. Good on them. It was cool. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode and Corey's sassy pants, uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter or crap. No, X. That's what it's called. Uh, If you paid the dollar to register, remember, that's a requirement now. Uh, I'm at X-O-R-R-O underscore. Corey is at Secadept. And the both of us are. Or or was. I'm not giving Elon Musk my dollar. Exactly. Hashtag the 443 podcast. Uh, Thanks again for listening. And you will hear from us next week. Stop drinking water, only drink diet soda.